0: Welcome back to Dungeons and Drama Nerds, a podcast where we explore the intersection between theater and tabletop role-playing games. I'm Todd Brian Backus, here with Percy. Hi. And Nick. Hey. As well as a special guest, James Patefield, an actor, director, and divisor here in Portland, Maine. Hi, everyone. So this week we're here discussing device theater and tabletop games, and I wanted to talk to James in particular because he's devised a lot of work with Bear Portland here in Maine over the last five years or so. Um, So, James, can you tell us a little bit about your background as a devising artist?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So I started devising in college um, as part of... So I think it also comes to... Talking about like where devising comes from too. That I sort of came at devising from an improv background and a Commedia dell'arte background. And so when when I was studying abroad <laughs> in Italy, I uh, got to study under some great great folks who are uh, excellent practitioners in what is essentially devising craft. Um, so devising through Commedia, devising through improv, devising through clown. And, and then I started applying those lessons once I, I got out into the world. Uh, and so with Bear Portland, the, compa- the company that I was a part of here in Portland, uh, we devised one full performance of the Yellow Wallpaper, uh, which was in 2017. And then uh, this past year, we I directed our production of a, a project called Storage, which was a full year long, um, partially devised, well, it was devised throughout every step of it, but it was, um, we bought the contents of a storage unit at auction and then made a piece of performance and a, an immersive, uh, installation based off of what we found inside. Yeah. That's, that's sort of my background. Yeah.
0: And, uh, for listeners who aren't super familiar with devised theater, can you, kind of describe it from a foundational level? Like what's the difference between devised theater and what someone might think of as like more traditional air quotes theater? Totally. I think that if we're going to put it in like historical context,
1: the devised theater is sort of a rebellion against the traditional, more modeled after capitalism, uh, traditional power structure. Of theater making, so instead it decentralizes power from the director to everyone involved in the project. So, in in an ideal space, it's actors, performers, designers, the director, or like the editor coming together and creating something organically through various exercises, stitching all of that together into a into a finished product. That is like a set thing, but is creating something out of quote unquote nothing. And yeah, it's got the precedence in like Jersey Grotowski and Bertolt Brecht. And, you know, it ends up sometimes having like a weird, uh, you know, cult of personality around these problematic white men <laughs> uh, historically. And, but also, you know, it's born out in the Worcester group. And,
2: frantic assembly
1: yes frantic assembly um and so it's all of these organizations that are sort of built around this collaborative performance making
0: so uh we sent you the audio from john john session zero Um, yes and to me i think it's like uh a devising for tabletop 101
2: Um, the way
0: john john sets up the first session or session zero rather um i think is a really fantastic approach to uh how do we come together to tell a story and how do we set like useful rules and boundaries around those things to make like the work that we're doing both focused and fun yes completely um and so some of the things that John John talked about are like what are the stories that we're interested in telling what are the things we want to explore what are the things we want to avoid um and i think that like i try to make my rehearsal rooms really open for collaboration by acknowledging that like as a director, which is often the role that I'm in, like I don't have all the answers. I don't expect to have like a perfect vision of the play. I have some ideas, and like we'll see where they go. Um, uh-huh. But getting to listen to John John's approach was really like, oh, this like I could do even more. I could be even like wider in this. And I'm wondering, as someone who uh, is both a theater maker and a tabletop player, um, what are some things that you think? tabletop players could learn from devising practice?
1: I think the, yeah, I, th- I think it's the the sense of play. The, and I was so heartened by John John drawing those clear, healthy boundaries around, like, what stories do we want to tell? What stories do we not, not want to tell? Uh, because I think, you know, that's definitely something I want to seal both in, theater making and in tabletop playing that like it sort of gave me this this sense of galaxy brain because you know one of the aspects of DD that's always made me feel so iffy and gross are like the racial dynamics and how you basically get pigeonholed into encountering fantasy racism no matter what unless you're a human ironically Um, (laughs) but john john also was so intentional about getting into specific, like, leaving room for the players of the game to have specific reactions, like, painting out enough of an outline so that you have uh, some rules to rebel against um, and also some rules to support you. And we'll talk about mechanics later. But, yeah, like, being able to go go past, like, very generic... Um, hooks and knives into something that's much more specific that allows you to tell a much richer story, and it's also something that's a little more idiosyncratic too, uh, because you get to. I love John John's whole idea of like the rule of cool, and in the in the room, I often when we're devising, I'll my go to phrase will be that's so dumb, <laughs> uh, it's so dumb. I love it <laughs> because you're with devising work you're ideally able to get past like you're not trying to make something poly, quote unquote, polished or good or like super finished uh in the room and as soon as you can like get away from taking it super seriously the more rich what you make will be
2: I'm thinking about what you said about devising as a revolt against capitalism, and I'm thinking about what we're talking about now in terms of just, like, things don't have to be super po- and I'm thinking about, like, this is a game set in the apocalypse. Do you think that the setting is helpful at all in terms of, like, theoretically, we're in a world where all the structures we know have collapsed? Like, do you think that frees, like, freed us up a little bit more to do weird, dumb shit?
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think I think that's completely connected. And the other phrase from Session Zero that really really stuck out to me is the the idea of um, like apocalyptic pragmatism. That like let's not uh, let's not gild this lily too much. Like let's take a direct path, and it also yeah empowers all of you to as players to make your own choices because john john as gm or um
0: master of ceremonies
1: master of ceremonies that's right and it's uh, again deconstructing like the gm role a little bit where you know in traditional dd it could be like ah the the gm is god but really no it the gm is just sort of trying to wrangle all these different ideas and edit them together in a way that is seamless and enjoyable for the players
0: I read something recently that uh, seemed pretty like common sense to me but there were people it was like on Reddit it popped up and it was like you're not playing for your players as a GM you're playing with your players and -hmm. there were a lot of people who were like galaxy braining about this and thinking like oh this is like not how I think of GMing I think of like I'm setting up a thing so that they can play Um, and instead thinking about it as like No, you just have a different role that you're also playing. Like it is your job to help facilitate a cool experience, but like it's also your job to have fun. Yeah. In that.
1: Yeah. Which is why I come back to like improv's roots in or devising's roots in improv. It's all about yes anding. And like with improv you don't want a character to really Overtake another character and and shoot down their ideas and uh, really railroad them in a particular direction of the plot. You want to build that collectively, and that's the really exciting thing about it is that you you can map it out as much as you want as a GM, but you have no idea where any given <laughs> session will necessarily go, uh, or you've got bits and pieces that you can throw in as needed, but it's almost never where you initially intend it to be and I remember when so as Percy and Nick I'm sure you know but you know for Todd's and my D&D group um, our friend Johnny was the like act one DM I took over as act for act two and now Todd is doing act three when I was prepping for, for my stint like I think it was like one of those Matt Mercer Geek Sundry video, videos where it was like okay the next step of DMing is Just let your players describe what this world is like. Let it be um, like no need to necessarily even uh, when painting a word picture fall back on what your vision of it is. Because at the end of the day, the players are who it's who are inhabiting this world.
3: I think there's a real movement in tabletop games in that direction of like more increased player agency and like shared agency over the world and the narrative we saw that a little bit with apocalypse world but as i read more and more games increasingly built into the structure of the game itself are these expectations and ways to enable people to create the world as players and even in some cases there you know people are creating games now that are completely lacking a gm that are just for two players in the same role without a gm or even for one player sometimes without gm i think that cross-pollination that also happens i think between devised theater and more quote-unquote traditional theater is really interesting to see and really healthy
1: yeah yeah and it reminds me of um like that—that that new game I—or it's not a new game, but it's been around for years. But I, it's new to me. Uh, I think it's Fable, um, where essentially you end up having the players create their own move sets, essentially, and you know, initiative is entirely dictated by, okay, who wants to go, <laughs> and it's that different approach to mechanics, I think, is really rich and exciting.
2: Yeah, and from like a from a player perspective, it was really refreshing. A for the GM figure to not be super precious about like if we because he brought us this like here's what I here's what I have, but we a were had the agency to flesh out aspects of it based on what was convenient for what we wanted to do with our characters, but also for us to be able to say this detail doesn't work for me. Can we change it to this? And he's like, Yeah, totally. It was really it was really nice. Um, And it's funny because I've been running. A D and d game at the youth theater that I work for um, and like we are trying to orient the game a lot towards like having the kids describe like what does that store look like or like who, who what's the you know what is this shopkeeper or bartender or whatever because we're trying to make it a theater exercise so that we have a, the barest minimum of an excuse to play D&D with children every Friday um <laughs> But I'm finding it really, really nice. It engages them, and it also like helps them share the spotlight with each other a little bit more, which I find is often a struggle in GM list games because there's nobody to reach out to the person who's not participating or who is a little bit quieter and say, "What do you think about this, or what are you going to do
1: yeah and and that's, yeah, that's sort of how I view the role of the director in a devising setting kind of it's. Your job to bring in um, everyone's voice to the table, and and that's why I love devising so much. Whether it's fully devising a piece or using devising exercises to stage and make a piece, because it it falls back on that idea of collective brilliance. That you know, no one person has to have all the answers, and that in fact, everyone working together can make something that's much more compelling and interesting and nuanced than the sum of its parts
0: almost. Mm-hmm. Flipping the earlier question a bit, is there anything that you think um, divisors could learn from tabletops? Like are there things in a tabletop practice or things that you've experienced in that, that you think would be useful for divisors who are trying to make theater?
1: Yeah, I think it's the – I keep coming back to the, the healthy boundaries – honestly because you know I was talking about like devising has this I, I wish I could take credit for this for this title but but one of my very good friends in college wrote like a, a paper when we were taking like a second wave avant-garde class that was all these men have god complexes and I hate it
2: it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing it's so good right
1: because you, you hear about like this auteur after this auteur and and at the end of the day, it's sort of like, yeah, it's not about you. <laughs> it's about the thing that you're creating, both with the people in the room and the, and in, in the end, the audience. Um, and so I think part of what I would say divisors can learn from uh, tabletop game players is very much like the sense of play and that it is a game and not to take it too seriously or be too, be too precious about it. And I think that's all that's all built in as well. Like, that's why I love devising because it is like, you know, when you're making a, a quick and dirty composition borrowing from like viewpoints, you know, it doesn't have to be anything. Uh, Like it, it just has to have the ingredients that you lay out in the recipe list. And otherwise, if, if it's like just very dumb and you can't use any part of it, that's totally fine. If you end up Using, like, a like a small throwaway joke for, for you, uh, just to make it exciting. Like that's also fine, and like getting away from this idea of like devising as, like this like art for art's sake. Very like, I don't know, like masturbatory exercise. Because <laughs> like you know, I've seen I've seen some some pieces that were devised that I'm also like okay so. Who is this for in terms of like? uh, I remember it was, I'm gonna make so many people up by referencing this, but it was this production of um, a Shakespeare play in college. And it was really, really like amazingly smart in all of its creative elements, but they ended up creating this entire meta narrative through devising without altering the text of the play itself. And so it was sort of like the meta narrative was communicated to us like gradually and subliminally as we were watching it. But it was also like not explicit enough where, when you were uh, getting away from the text of the play or changing the ending of this particular Shakespeare play to reflect what's happening in the meta narrative, suddenly it's like uh, I. I think you might have jumped the shark there a little bit like this is for you not necessarily for the audience to make more sense of it because it was like because you know talking to people after it was like oh but of course you know my character is actually in a in a senior care facility and grappling with his loss of control over that and I'm like cool that's great did not get that uh like there was or like you know just letting things go Lovingly, as some, as a person who this is true for, I think theater people tend to take things very seriously. And I think the more we can embrace play, the better, like during yellow wallpaper, we had this, um, composition of what we called the ductures, which were a bunch of doctors who are also ducks. Um, and it did not make it into the play. And I'm glad it did. Cause <laughs> it was more funny for us creating it than it would have been for the audience. <laughs>
0: I was trying to remember back and I was like, was there a sequence where they quacked or something? Um, but I, I sometimes wonder if device theater, uh, could like benefit from a dramaturg and not in like the research sense, but in the outside eye of the audience sense. Um, like I find that my mentor, um, Dr. Jessica Hester, um, Who was a lovely woman Her view of like uh, Rehearsal work As a dramaturg Was like it's my job to pop in Every couple rehearsals and pretend I don't know anything about the play And say like What What does an audience see from this Like I know How the play is supposed to work I know what these people are trying to do But like does it read um, Is a question
2: Yeah, I devised a play with children last summer for which I was the dramaturg, and that was exactly what it was. And it was so helpful um, in terms of just you have all of these people with so many cool ideas, but also sometimes you don't know where to edit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one of my mentors in college, uh, James Peck, who is a lovely uh, director and also uh, performance studies knowledge source, Um, he, he had a very similar approach essentially to that where it's like, yeah, my, my job is to come in and, and be an an audience advocate too, to also like delight and surprise. And, um, you know, he, he drew a lot from Brecht and it was like, you know, to strike them, the audience clearly with an idea and have like that image, uh, speak out, speak out to them.
3: So one other thing we were thinking about was that there's sort of a bonus collaborator in any multi-person scene in tabletop games, which is the mechanics, which can give you these narratives that sort of no one could have anticipated and that not everyone wants because you might really want to do something and then utterly fail or the reverse. Um, have you ever seen or experimented with something like that in your devising practice, kind of mechanics or or rules of devising?
1: Yes. I think you know devising for me at least is you know and and prefacing all of this with that uh i'm not a i'm not an expert in devising i'm just a practitioner that mechanics are so helpful because they give structure and again going back to devising as rooted in playing games every good game has to have rules and it's related to the world that, you know, at least what I'm listening to in session zero, that, that John John's building with the players, uh, that, you know, in the, it's not building too much. Like it's, it has rules. This world has rules in, and different sections of this world have different rules, but in a devising process, you probably build even less upfront, uh, to play in. And yeah, it's sort of like, um, there's that book, Exposed by the mask by Peter Hall, which is like, once you know the rules, you can break them. And Mm -hmm. especially when in a devising process, you might be playing 15 different kinds of games over the course of 15 days of rehearsal and like uh, 45 hours. And the way in which all of those different rule sets intersect as you're taking bits and pieces and editing it all together is also interesting for the world of the play too. So that, I mean, every, every play has rules, right? (laughs) That you know, whether it's as simple as like that we all like one of the first rules that we all met when we started doing performance, which is like, you know, don't turn your back to the audience. And then gradually it's like, well, actually (laughs) you can like, and you know, you, create rules for characters within this world, too. Like, my character never goes across the stage unless they have their uh, special broom with them or... My character never goes into... Uh, this is f- something from storage. It's like, my character completely lives in the porn church. My character does not go in the child wonder junk pile, uh, like because that is not where my character lives.
0: Um, there was a lot of stuff in this storage container. Oh, my God. It, <laughs> it, I, I don't won't...
2: want to know the context, because porn church is so evocative on its own.
1: It was. <laughs> my brain is... <laughs> And, and like, I can't even, I can't even, uh, describe just the, like the way, the process that we used for that was to have devising sessions with this group of writers that we had pulled in from the community. Cause after our previous process, like writing the devised piece as well as devising it just proved to be like a recipe for burnout. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the like the world that they came up with is just incredible and like yeah uh, like this whole filing cabinet that we found in the storage unit was filled filled to the brim with uh like erotica and mailers from uh you know Abbot uh adam and eve and ebony and penthouse <laughs> and it was what a
2: what a treat it was a treat it was <laughs> i mean a treat. i love I love the wild shit that happens when you just are open to whatever, like you mentioned rule of cool earlier. I think specifically that came up in part because one of the players of our campaign was like, my character runs a fighting arena in a Metro car that's pulled by a demon.
1: Yeah. A pop-up fight club <laughs> in a, in a demon pulled train car. Or the the other one was um, like the the plant infused prosthetic. Like that's so... Mm-hmm like that is a direct outgrowth of two people collaborating together on something um with another person as like an outside eye to be like yeah that's that's dope as hell <laughs> like that's something that could not happen outside of that environment of collaboration
3: kind of uh riffing off that do you have you found in your devising practice that there is a like upper limit for how many rules are useful this is something i've been thinking about a lot as i look at different tabletop systems some of which are very like bare bones and then some have exhaustive rules for everything so i'm just curious what you've found to be true
1: yeah i think looking at something with a magnifying glass versus looking at the magnifying glass it Mm. like once you start once it starts to become a play about rules (laughs) unless you want it to be a play about rules, like then I think it's less helpful. So like, you know, one part of the yellow wallpaper in that, that is a, a story about this woman rebelling all the, against all these rules that are set for her was like gradually like overloading the audience with all the things that like saying overtly, like she can't do this. She can't do that. She can't do this. She can't do that. And then like having, watching her break those patterns and eventually get rid of that like narrative voice, so yeah, I think there's absolutely a limit, <laughs> um, and and I think you know the audience testing that we were all, we were all talking about is also super important for that because like for for at least the la- these last two projects that I keep referencing, it was also built around this idea of audience interactivity to a certain extent, and so having literal playtesting is is really exciting to see in terms of what audiences will go with you on because people are, you know, I think audiences are generally smart and smarter than we give them credit for often. (laughs) And they'll go with you on something, but you have to just be clear and direct with them in terms of like, what exactly are you asking of me? Am I going to be safe when I do it? like what kind of performance art is this (laughs) to again, harken back to like the, the bad rap that I think it sometimes deservedly gets as somebody doing it for themselves and not for telling a story in a compelling way.
2: I think safety is an interesting thing to bring up and we're going to do like, we're going to talk about safety in the context of apocalypse world later, but I think that that's so important. And a thing that we don't talk about enough is just how do you set the audience up to feel like they can be brave and vulnerable in a space. And also how do you set your ensemble up so that they can do the same thing? Um, Cause I think we talk a lot about how art benefits from vulnerability, but not enough about how do you make that a thing that people, a place that people can get to where they can be giving their full self. Yeah.
1: I think, yeah, that's such a good point <laughs> that, and I think it ties into some, some really cool work that I actually did with Ella, who's in your Apocalypse World game, because they were our intimacy director for storage. And so one of the things that we talked about when we brought them in was to say, like, safety and consent is also about the choice, like having a choice. Um, and so having even just having a choice for the players in a a game to be like, yeah, my character is not into that. I'm not going to be there. Um, Or like, yeah, I'm going to leave and do something else over here. Or, you know, I don't want to necessarily go along with what the group is doing in this way or this way. Uh, Having that variation of choice really helps people stay safe. I mean, it was so helpful having Ella there in general because they created this beautiful intimacy choreography for this bizarre moment in the script that we had again, you know, this is a play with a porn church in it, but like it was, we created this bizarre, uh, like mashup of found footage that we had that from the tapes and cassettes in the storage unit. And we gave them to a local burlesque performer and he mashed them up under this Elvis song that also had been incorporated into the script. And it was just this bizarre, beautiful thing. But then when we were actually in the room, I was like, oh, great. Like, you know, we're going to have the audience circle around and, like, watch this thing and have the actors be doing these pieces around it. But it's really about the thing. And then, you know, somebody brought the very good point. They're like, well, what if the audience doesn't want to watch it? (laughs) Like, what if they're uncomfortable with that? And we're essentially forcing them to watch a mashup of pornography. And I'm like, yeah, that's a really good point. And so having a variety of of things for the audience to look at even is and you know, I think we also had one or two actors who were also a little uncomfortable with that, like being forced to watch it. And so even being able to have them be to say to them, okay, we're going to honor and respect that boundary. And you know, you're also doing this thing over here that the audience can look at and enjoy and Take in, in the context of everything else, like that's that's super important.
0: So one of the mechanics built into Apocalypse World is that the world building and the character creation is all done collaboratively at the table together. Um, what benefits do you think this might have for the rest of the gameplay, and how do you feel this might relate to devising theater in general?
1: It's sort of like the that game Exquisite Corpse too, uh, where You know, you've got this writing exercise ostensibly where everyone's completing a different part of it. Like at the end of session zero, when the players are are really going around and forming that connective tissue, that to me is is just something that's hugely rich because that again is where these things kind of organically spring up. And it makes it really less about writing the script and more about editing what you've already made together. Because, of course, like with any role playing, it's not about like this is the plot. We're railroading you all on this road to this eventual conclusion, because I think that'd be a lot less interesting and a lot less fun than all of the idiosyncratic, weird, delightful things that can come up in the meantime.
2: One thing that I remember being really energized by when we were doing the, um, the part at the end where you assigned like relationship stats basically was how easy it was to like it was very obvious from the process who was close with who and what the dynamics were which I thought was really interesting um that it felt so effortless like it just always was there um which I imagine is is a experience common in devising which I've not done a lot of but just you look and you're like oh like we got we got it like we just put it together which is really really cool and exciting
1: no and well, and it made me think about devising a bunch because, like, devising is, is a very... I find it to be a very time-intensive endeavor. And the reason why that was so rich is that because you all had the space to explore, like, all these truths about your characters before that. Like, if you had flipped the order of that and started with the history mechanic, it would have been so much less rich and so much less to... to to echo what you said, Percy, that like, it was, it was sort of like a for not a foreground conclusion, but it was like so clear. And so, so exciting that it was so clear that it was like, Oh yeah. Like that, that totally makes sense. Like as an audience com- member coming along for the ride, it was like, Oh yeah. Like that, that I completely agree with that, with what the players just did. And that in and of itself is like an also interesting, like rewarding thing that, Oh, like this is like, I can definitely picture this.
2: That's so exciting that it is because I found it so engaging just as an, as an artist, as a player for us to just spend three hours, like shooting the shit about our characters. And I'm like, yeah, I was a little, I was like, Oh, is this masturbatory? But no, like I, I don't know. I, as an audience member, I always like being let in on the process. I like feeling like I am a part of the creation of something, or at least like I get a window in. So yeah, that's that's exciting. Um, yeah, like so that's what fun. makes
1: table, like all the best parts of tabletop are those moments. I think that where like something goes delightfully off the rails too, um, like in the actual play.
2: That happens. That happens a lot. <laughs> 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 um,
1: it can feel masturbatory, and yet at the same time, it also Like when I approach a process, like as a director and as an actor, it also like takes the pressure way off because I'm beginning to know, like, not just the characters that these people are playing, but the people themselves too, which just makes you a better collaborator. And, uh, yeah, like it, it, it adds so much that is intangible to the process in the long run.
2: Yeah. And I think circling back a little bit to safety, it builds so much trust. Mm -hmm. Which was really valuable, especially in a game like Apocalypse World, where a it is so open ended that you don't have because I feel like in D&D, because the stories are so often like escort the guy to the city or go kill the monster and then come back and get your reward. Like Apocalypse World isn't like that at all. So I had we just didn't like it. It felt okay that we didn't know what was going to happen or what was the quote unquote right thing to do, because a we knew there wasn't a right thing to do. And also I could. I had a good idea of what everybody else in the game wanted character-wise or what they as players were interested in. So I felt like, okay, I can, if I don't know what to do, somebody else probably will. And that was really nice. Exactly.
1: Which is like, honestly, embodying your character. That like, you know, it it stops. It Like I am somebody who is a little guilty of this in, in my in like tabletop games where I'm like, okay, I'll metagame my way out of this. <laughs> uh, like and being able to stop that impulse and just be in the moment and embody the character that you're in because you can trust everybody else in your group to, to help figure it out in a fun way is, is like that's aces, that's amazing yeah it's been delightful talking to you all I mean this is I could, I could talk about all this for forever so this is really really rad
0: um, well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, and next week, we'll be diving back into Apocalypse World. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nerds. Check out our cast bios on our website dungeonsanddramanerds and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Boo, 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 doo, burn, I'm going to stop, stop recording. Boop, boop, boop.